So I'm going to ask that you open up your Bibles to Philippians chapter 1. We're looking at 12 to 30. We've started a series in the book of Philippians. And I just want to remind you that Philippians is a church that was planted. We, we looked at Acts 16 in reference to that last Sunday. It was planted by Paul. And the start of the church really involved Paul being in prison. And, and so that's why the, you know, the overall theme of this is Philippians, from prison to prison, because he's writing this letter from prison. And so there's that, from prison to prison, and the theme of Philippians is joy. So in prison and in prison, but we see joy throughout all of that. You know, this morning after we spend time in the Bible, we will participate in communion and the prayer stations. And so I want to just again remind you of that. And, and you'll have an opportunity to respond. When I think of the book of Philippians in this area of joy, I heard this past week a phrase and I thought, wow, that is so good. Here it is. Are you ready for this? The grass does not grow greener on the other side. The grass grows greener where you water it. Huh? Isn't that? Like, it's true. Yeah. The grass doesn't grow greener on the other side. It grows greener where you water it. Well, our attitudes are so key. They are so key to the gospel, to daily life. And so our attitude, Philippians 1, 12 to 30. Holocaust survivor, Viktor Frankl, he said the following, everything can be taken from a man, but one thing, the last of human freedoms, to choose one's attitude in any given set of circumstances cannot be taken away. Victor Franklin was a Holocaust survivor and he saw atrocities that are beyond what we can imagine. But that's what he said. Everything can be taken from a man, but one thing, the last of human freedoms, to choose one's attitude in any given set of circumstances. So often we share positive and amazing, miraculous stories, thinking, hoping that these stories will bring people to Christ. They do. They do. They really do. But they might bring people to Christ with the wrong expectations. Did you ever think of that? You know, as we tell these powerful stories of the blessings of Jesus, that they could end up leading a person to wrong expectations. We love to tell the prosperity gospel stories. I know some of you listen to Joel Steen's stories, and you love that. They're like a picker-upper. But these stories might cause or create false gospel expectations. Jesus was not wealthy. Jesus suffered death. He died a harsh death. 
The disciples, they died harsh deaths. The early Christians, they suffered right from the get-go. As soon as the church gets released, as soon as the church is birthed, we right away find persecution occurring. Throughout the ages, Christians have suffered for proclaiming and living the gospel. You know, even today, in other parts of the world, Christians are being persecuted. They're being killed for their faith. Some of you know that. You've come to Canada because of what's going on in the countries where you originate from. In North America, we have been blessed. We've got to stop and realize that. We, this is an anomaly. This is unusual where we're living. This is unusual in reference to the time span of the church. We need to be thankful. We need to be so, so thankful. But I think we all would admit that this tide of prosperity and gospel acceptance and the acceptance of Christian values is being eroded. It's slipping from this country here today in Canada. We're living in those days. The foundational beliefs of the gospel are being questioned. The concept that there's only one way to heaven and that is by believing in Jesus. That's being questioned. The defining of sin. That there is such a thing as sin. That it separates a person from God. That sin defines eternal destiny. Heterosexual marriage is God's plan. That's being questioned in our culture. And in the church. Life before birth. The value of life before birth. And the value of the old or the struggling with illnesses. The sacredness of that is being questioned. That is the world. Not the world. That's already there maybe, but that's Canada. The, the things that are happening in Canada. The political climate, the change. Our attitude in this changing climate should not be based on our circumstances but on the hope and the power of God. So we need an attitude of joy. But how can we have an attitude of joy? We really can have an attitude of joy in the toughest situations. And that attitude of joy can be infectious. Paul's story that we find here in Philippians chapter 1, 12 to 30, is an example of that. And we are challenged to embrace that. So Paul's story begins, it's just the opposite of the stories that we like to share. Paul's story is one of imprisonment, of hardship. And in that, it is actually advancing the gospel. It's attracting people to Jesus. Paul says that all the guards and everyone else knows that he's imprisoned in reference to his faith 
and not a crime he has committed. Paul is talking to the prison guards. They're chained to him. Every, you know, they get changed on a regular basis, but a guard, new guard comes and chained to Paul. And Paul gets again the opportunity to share the gospel with that new guard. And then the prison guards, they talk to their friends, they talk to their families. The gospel is being spread in the most unlikely means, by the most unlikely means. Paul's imprisonment is over a faith issue. The fact that Paul has lived an exemplary life gives credibility to the gospel. And I think that's something that we need to realize. The lives that we live either support the gospel or in one way or in a strange way. They don't erode the gospel, no. But to those that are listening, they begin to question when our lives do not line up with the truth. Basically, the church and friends are talking about Paul's imprisonment and the gospel. The gospel is being spread. Even those that are jealous towards Paul, even those that had something out for Paul, they're even spreading the gospel because they're talking and saying, look at that, Paul is in prison. He's in prison because of the gospel. Paul sees what is taking place not as something bad, but as something good, an attitude, joy. The gospel is being preached. God works through the most unlikely circumstances. And I love Paul's attitude in those circumstances. Philippians 1.18. But what does it matter? The important thing is that in every way, whether from false motives or true Christ is preached, and because of this, I rejoice. You see, it, Paul is not concerned about his own circumstances. He has a vision that goes way beyond that. That's why he has this attitude of joy, an attitude that every one of us who are Christ followers should have. This life that we live is short in comparison to eternity. I don't even know how we would measure whatever time we might have here, uh, how we would measure it against eternity. We can't talk in percentages. We can't talk, like, it just doesn't make sense. It's so short. He says, and because of this, I rejoice. Yes, and I will continue to rejoice. If we can feel defeated by what is happening to us and to our world, or if we choose to rejoice. It's one or the other. We can, we can choose to feel defeated or we can choose to rejoice. It's up to us. That's our choice. If we choose to have joy, it will be contagious. Other Christians will be encouraged. That's what Paul tells us. That's what was happening. And there's a boldness. There's a boldness that takes place. We can walk around and say, woe is me, and we're living in terrible times. <laughs> we do say that, okay? 
But we can respond also at the same time with Jesus is still truth. And he is so good. Jesus is still the truth. And he is so good. We need to ask a question. How can your circumstance, how can my circumstances be used by God for his benefit? That's the question we need to ask. And we take Paul as an example. It has to do with our attitude. You know, Paul's situation reminds me of of Joseph in the Old Testament. Many of you know the story of Joseph in the Old Testament. Joseph becomes second in command. But his circumstances are very strange. There's a, it, it really begins with Joseph's brothers selling him into slavery. He's taken to Egypt. And through a series of circumstances there, prison, other, like he becomes second in command of Egypt. There's a famine throughout the Middle East. And Joseph's brothers need food. And there's lots of food in Egypt because God gave wisdom to Joseph. And they go to Egypt to buy food and they are again reunited with their brother Joseph. They're afraid. They're not sure how this is all going to work out. Joseph brings his entire family to Egypt. They survive the famine. Joseph's father passes away. And the brothers are thinking, oh man, we're going to be in trouble. You see, they remember what they did to Joseph. The question is, does Joseph remember what they did to him? And so they go to talk to Joseph. And Joseph responds with these words. He says, you intended to harm me, but God intended it for good to accomplish what is now being done, the saving of many lives. I wonder if Paul, while he was in prison, I wonder if Paul was thinking of the same. I wonder if if this story came to Paul's mind. And he said, that's it. That's exactly what's happening today to me. People intended this for evil. The Jewish leadership and others intended my imprisonment for evil. But the gospel is being proclaimed. When we tell people that the life choices they are making are wrong and they need to change Not everyone accepts this truth with joy. When Paul is writing this letter to the church at Philippi, he's in prison in Rome, awaiting trial. Roman Emperor Nero is in power. And many of us have read history and stories of Nero and what he did to Christians. Nero was not a friend of Christians. And Paul believes that what Ever the outcomes, it would be for his deliverance. What a perspective, what an attitude. What does he mean by that? Well, first he's confident in the prayers of the church and the provision of the Holy Spirit 
And his hope is that in whatever takes place, he will not be ashamed. That he will not bring shame upon the gospel. He says it this way in Philippians 1, 19 to 20. He says, For I know that through your prayers and God's provision of the Spirit of Jesus Christ, what has happened to me will turn out for my deliverance. I eagerly expect and hope that I will in no way be ashamed, but will have sufficient courage so that now as always Christ will be exalted in my body, whether by life or by death. Now when we read that, we right away think, oh, yeah, Paul is pretty sure that he's going to be let out of prison. Oh, that's not the full thought behind this area of deliverance. When Paul says to me, to me will turn out for my deliverance, the, the full thought of that is not, oh, free from jail. No. No. He's thinking of two possibilities. Of course, the one possibility is that he will be released from prison. And he'll continue to plant churches. He's going to continue to proclaim the gospel. But the other possibility, the other possibility is that he will die. So this is deliverance. Deliverance in the life and death. Both are deliverance. Maybe that's a different perspective than what you would have. But I believe this is a God perspective. In either case, he doesn't want to be ashamed. He wants Christ to be exalted in him. So an attitude connected to Jesus is what we find in Paul. And Paul declares that perspective when he says in verse 21 of Philippians chapter 1, he says, for me to live is Christ and to die is gain. For me to live is Christ and to die is gain. Paul's life is wrapped up in Jesus. His purpose, his passion, all of who he is, it's all about Jesus. In Colossians, Christ, the hope of glory. Christ in me, the hope of glory. I wonder, am I able to say the same? I, I, I believe that many of us believe that when we die, we'll be in the presence of Christ. I do. I believe that. This is the hope of our faith. But are we ready to say to live is Christ? Are we ready to say that? To live is Christ. And what does living for Christ really look like in our world? I think these are questions that come out of these verses and questions we need to ask. We need to reflect on this. Well, I think that living for Christ involves righteousness. It involves reflecting God's character, God's heart, its holiness. Oh, that's a weird word, right? We don't want to be holy. 
righteousness. I think living for Christ, righteousness is definitely a part of it. I think living for Christ is also a heart that is torn by the lostness of humanity. So living for Christ is living righteously and a heart that is hurting, a heart that is broken for the lost, for your neighbors, for your friends, for your family that doesn't know Jesus. I think in the heart of a person who loves Jesus, there's this desire to be in the presence of Jesus. When I look at the world around us, I think, oh, Lord Jesus, please come home. You know, please come, please come. Set up your your kingdom now. Oh, Jesus, please. And, And this is not a desperate death wish or something like that or depression. It's because as we see what's happening around us, we're hurting We're living in a world that's becoming less and less like Jesus and we're countering the brokenness of family and friends and so we cry out, Lord, come. Paul had that desire to be with Jesus. In the presence of Jesus, there's only love. In the presence of Jesus, there's only peace. In the presence of Jesus, There are no tears, no aches, no pains. In the presence of Jesus, there's security. In the presence of Jesus, there's no fear. In the presence of Jesus, there is joy. So Paul says, I desire to depart and be with Christ which is better by far. Oh, definitely. That struggle is going on in Paul and he expresses it so well. Philippians 1, 21 to 26, for me to live is Christ and to die is gain. If I'm to go on living in the body, this will mean fruitful labor for me. Yet what shall I choose? I do not know. I'm torn between the two. I desire to depart and be with Christ, which is better by far. But it is more necessary for you that I remain in the body. Convinced of this, I know that I will remain and will continue with all of you for your progress and joy in the faith. So that through my being with you again, your boasting in Christ Jesus will abound on account of me. Paul is saying, as much as I want to be with the Lord Jesus Christ, I see what is happening here. And I guess I need to be here to encourage young believers to walk faithfully with Jesus, to proclaim the gospel so that more will come to know Jesus The yearning for Jesus is so great, but the reality of hell drives Paul forward through 
impossible and horrendous situations to proclaim Jesus Christ, to proclaim the gospel. Paul's sole objective is to see people coming to a saving faith in Jesus. I just stop and think here for a while. My heart hurts. I wonder, the question we need to ask again, or that what we need to think about is, when we as Westgate say that we are a loving community, do we love people to the extent that we will give anything and do anything for them to come to know Jesus? When we as Westgate say that we are a loving community, do we love people to the extent that we will give anything and do anything for them to come to know Jesus? You know, the best thing that I, as a follower of Jesus, can do for my family, for my friends, for our city, for our province, for our country, is to be righteous. To walk faithfully with God. To reflect the truth of God's character, the truth of the written word. In our world, and that's where we find ourselves as a church today, our world wants us to change the gospel so that people can go to heaven. But changing the gospel will not save anyone. You see, because it's not, we don't have the power. It's, it's, it's not in our abilities. It's, it's not... Yeah, we can't do that. Changing the gospel will not save anyone. In fact, if we change the gospel, we're going to help people to go to hell. Did you ever think of that? When you change the gospel, when you water it down, when you do something to the gospel that's not in keeping with the gospel, You're really helping people into hell. We must have an attitude that connects us to Jesus' character. An attitude that manifests the truth. Paul was not ashamed. He did not want to be ashamed. An attitude that manifests the truth. That's what we need. Philippians 1, 27 and 28. Whatever happens, conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ. Then whether I come and see you or only hear about you in my absence, I will know that you stand firm in the one spirit, striving together as one for the faith of the gospel, without being frightened in any way by those who oppose you. This is a sign to them that they will be destroyed, but that you will be saved and that by God. Conduct yourselves as kingdom citizens on earth. How do we do that? An attitude that manifests the truth. We love God with all our heart.
We love one another. You love your neighbor. And you reflect the values of the kingdom. You know, when we do that, we'll find ourselves in tension and in conflict. I assure you that. That's what you'll do. As a church and as an individual, we'll find ourselves in tension with the values of the community that we live in today. But we need to be truthful. Not obnoxious. We need to be truthful. Love is the key component in all of this. We need to ask the questions, what are the social and political issues to which the church must speak? If we are to be faithful to Jesus, we will encounter adversaries. When we stand up for the oppressed, women, children, those of different ethnic backgrounds, the poor, the transients, when we stand up against violence in the homes, when we cheapen the value of human life by easy abortion and euthanasia and assisted death, when we speak out against that, we will counter adversaries. But we need to. We need to. Jesus said in Matthew chapter 5, 10 and 12, he says, blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when people insult you, persecute you, and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. Rejoice and be glad, because great is your reward in heaven, for in the same way they persecuted the prophets who were before them. Paul says in verse 29 of the, of the verses we're looking at, he says, For it has been granted to you on behalf of Christ not only to believe in him, but also to suffer for him. That's so different than the message that we hear at times, isn't it? But stand strong on truth, don't be afraid. Verses 27 and 28, stand firm in the one spirit, striving together as one for the faith of the gospel without being frightened in any way by those who oppose you. But don't get me wrong. Don't get me wrong. Because I think as a church, sometimes as we've stood firm and, and solid in the gospel, I can say we've become obnoxious. Don't get me wrong here. Don't take this wrong. You see, it's not only about taking a stand against sin. You see, the gospel is not only about sin. It's about forgiveness and restoration. You see, that's what the gospel is. It's not only about sin. It's about forgiveness and restoration. The gospel is about love 
and grace. It's forgiveness without boundaries. If you say, Father, forgive me, your sins are forgiven. The gospel is about broken vessels being restored. You see, Paul wasn't just declaring this gospel of sin. He was talking about restoration. He was talking about forgiveness. And he's looked out and he saw the people, just like Jesus saw those who had not heard. And his heart hurt. And the same should be for us. When we look out in our city, into our neighborhood, we should hurt. Because heaven and hell is a reality. And the only way into heaven is in faith in Jesus Christ. It's so real. It's true. God is truth. So what does that mean for us? Communion, we're going to take part in and in just a moment's time. It speaks about restoration. It declares forgiveness. Jesus' death so that you can have life. I think the big question that comes out of this that resonates from Paul and that we need to tackle with today, the, the one that we need to wrestle with, are you willing to suffer so that someone will encounter Jesus in a transformational way? Are you willing to suffer so that someone will encounter Jesus in a transformational way? I'm going to ask the worship team to make their way to the front. We're going to partake in communion. In that area of preparation for communion, we're told to examine ourselves. And I think it would be fitting this morning for us to spend a few moments and to answer that question, does my heart hurt in reference to the brokenness in my world? Does my heart hurt for those that have not accepted Jesus? our hearts don't hurt I think we need to confess that let's bow our heads and just spend I'm going to give you just a moment of quietness just spend it in the area of self-examination Heavenly Father, you've heard our thoughts.
as we've wrestled with the truths that are found in the scripture passage we looked at as the example of Paul. His heart that reflects the heart, your heart, the heart of Jesus in reference to the lostness of humanity. Father, we ask for forgiveness in reference to our lack of concern for the lost. And Father, I would ask that you would give us a boldness to declare the truths of the gospel, to cry for the lost, to show them love, true love. Guide and direct us in that, I pray. We give you thanks in Jesus' name. Amen.